Let's just start in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be present by your spirit now, that we might hear your voice speaking to us, that we might rejoice in what you are calling us to do and how you are calling us to live. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as many of you will know, we're in a sermon series at the moment, looking at the prophecies of Isaiah. And last week, Ben thought a little bit with you about time and about how we might bring the principle of Sabbath into our weekly routines and our understanding of ourselves and of our role in the world. So I wonder, how do you relate to time? Is time something which simply slips through your fingers with never quite enough minutes in the day or for to do all the things that you need to do? Or is time something which seems to drag by with minutes feeling like hours and hours like days? How do you marshal time so that it feels like a a friend and not an enemy? One way in which the church is related to time is by having its own calendar. Now, I don't mean by that that we have ignored the fact that it's the month of March or that you simply guess what time to turn up to church on a Sunday by the slant of the sun. It means that the church's calendar is based on a different set of priorities. Priorities which are shaped by the time-altering events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So in broad brushstrokes, the church's calendar starts with a period of anticipation and waiting at the beginning of Advent, which finds its culmination in the coming of Jesus celebrated at Christmas. Then a little later, we enter Lent, 40 days spent recognizing our need for a saviour before we recall the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday, when on the cross and in the tomb, death was defeated, and we know the life and freedom and grace of a new relationship with God. And along with those two major events of Christmas and Easter, we recall other significant moments in the gospel story coming of the wise men at Epiphany, the ascension of Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, and so on. And the rest of the year, well, we have something called ordinary time, when we remember the work of Jesus on earth, that God is living and active in the world every day, as well as in those high points. Now, the observant of you might have noticed that here at St. Mary's, as in many other Anglican, Roman Catholic, and Lutheran churches around the world, the colours on the High Communion table and all around the church change according to the season as the church calendar turns. So right now we have purple, uh, a colour associated with repentance as we are in Lent. Now, as interesting as all that is to know some of the reasons behind some of the stuff we do in church, what possible relevance does it have to how we live our everyday lives? How on earth does it relate to what we read from Isaiah 58? Well, in this passage, it becomes apparent that the way that we choose to use our time is significant because it's indicative of our attitude and relationship to God. In this chapter, there's there's a contrast made between those who spend their time doing religious acts in an attempt to manipulate God into doing what they want and those who give their time to God freely and obedience to his command to take a Sabbath day. How we choose to spend our most precious commodity, our time, is significant. It matters. It matters because it reveals our priorities and our desires, our love for God, or our self-obsessed concern for others. For ourselves rather than others, that's the problem. This passage breaks down neatly into two sections, and you might want to follow along in the Pew Bible so you can see what I'm referring to. We have 
chapter 58, verses 1 to 5, which focuses on one way about using time, doing religious acts and treating other people. And then there's 58, 6 to 14, which focuses on a different way, the way which God delights in and honors. The heading in the Pew Bibles calls these two false and true worship. So let's look first at false worship found in verses 1 to 5. Verse 1 starts, shout out, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, announce to my people their rebellion, to the house of Jacob their sins. This is not a quiet, calm, discreet word in the ear of an individual. This is an unmistakable, loud, distinct word of rebuke to a whole nation, a whole group of people who together have started behaving in this way. And it's a bunch of people who should have known better. It's not an indiscriminate message. This is specifically addressed to my people, to the house of Jacob. This is directed at those who are meant to be in a covenant relationship with God, those who'd promised to live his way, those to whom God had revealed himself and who had experienced his goodness and faithfulness. But the way that they were behaving, the way they were spending their time, was not pleasing to him. Although superficially, it might have looked like they were doing all the right things, we read in verse 2, yet day after day they seek me and delight to know my ways. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Not bad, you might say, not bad. They sound like people to whom religion matters. They want to pray. They want to spend time with God. They actually seem to enjoy doing religious things. But it's precisely this that God wants to call out through the words of challenge he gives to Isaiah. On the surface, all is well. The people are seeking God and showing their seriousness through denying themselves food as they fast. Surely, fasting is not something that you would voluntarily do unless you thought it was important and meaningful in your connection to God. But what's going on here is vastly different from how things appear. These people were engaging in a religious practice and a religious behavior with a purpose. And that purpose was to get something from God, to manipulate him and to secure blessings that he wouldn't otherwise give them. They themselves had come up with this idea to fast. It was not something which God had asked or commanded them to do, The only fast day that is decreed in the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible, is on the Day of Atonement. And we find that outlined in Leviticus 16. This shall be a statute to you forever. In the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall deny yourselves. Shall do no work, neither the citizen nor the alien who resides among you. For on this day, atonement shall be made for you. To cleanse you from all your sins, you shall be clean before the Lord." It is a Sabbath of complete rest to you, and you shall deny yourselves. This is a statute forever. But this group of people had taken something good, something beautiful, something commanded by God as part of his ongoing relationship with his people, and they had twisted it beyond recognition. Yes, they denied themselves food, but every other aspect of that command they'd ignored. They did whatever they wanted. They sought their own interests. They forced others to continue in their toil while they did their religious thing. This was not fasting as it was intended. 
for the purpose of meditating upon the greatness of God, the seriousness of sin, and expressing thankfulness for a way of atonement being made for sin. This was manipulative self-interest disguised as religion. These people had capitulated to the dominant religious assumptions of the time. They'd absorbed from the nations around them a model for religious behavior which had nothing to do with the God who'd revealed himself to them, committed himself to them, and desired a relationship with them. They'd come to believe that their religious behavior was not only necessary, but was in some way a guarantee of favor and blessing. So fasting became almost this magical means of controlling God to do what they wanted. But God looks through their superficial devotion and says, what are you doing? I know you're not fasting because of your love for me or sorrow for your sins. I hear you. I see your behavior. I can hear you when you say to yourselves what we find in verse 3. Why do you fast but do not see? Why humble ourselves and you do not notice? Not only that, I, I, God, can see how you behave and it's not in accordance with my ways. Look, you serve your own interest on your fast day and oppress all your workers. Look, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to strike with a wicked fist. In these verses, of course, it's really easy for us to share with God his disappointment and dismay at the way the people are behaving. We can laugh, we can tut, say, how ridiculous is that? But these types of patterns of behavior are shockingly easy for us to fall into. What starts out as a desire to please God, to live for him, gets distorted as we take on the assumptions of society around us. Things which we used to do which were meaningful and helped us to grow in our walk with God become suddenly ways in which we can ensure our own safety, security and prospering. Our Bible reading can become about finding a nice verse, a comforting verse perhaps, or a promise that we can then hold God to. Our prayer can become about persuading God that he should act in accordance with our desires and wishes. Our worship can become about how we feel or whether we know or like the tune. So easily our focus slips And we engage in seemingly religious activities for ourselves and for our own sake, rather than as those who who serve a gracious and loving God who delights in us, who frees us from sin, who brings us life in all its fullness, and who longs to bless us with his presence. I read a blog post this week written by one of my colleagues, Lincoln Harvey, at St. Melitus College, which seemed to offer an appropriate challenge given that we're reading this passage in Lent. He says, The danger with Lent is it can be too easily hijacked by our shameless self-promotion. Lenten disciplines can become an annual attempt to polish ourselves up as we prepare to reach the light at the end of the tunnel. Fasting, penitence, abstinence, mortification, and associated disciplines like taking something on can be pursued in the spotlight of self-appreciation, with each of us basking in the shadowy glimmer of manufactured sanctification. 
We imagine that God is somehow impressed by our efforts, thereby drawing down imaginary currency to trade in our perverse economy of religious bartering for a strong-armed reward. Neither is the best course of action just simply stop doing anything that smacks of religious practice. Somehow we possess this ability to, to fool ourselves that we are more righteous than other people and should be more favoured by God, even when we are rather self-righteously and piously anti-religion. As the Swiss theologian Karl Barth once said, demolishing temples is no less religious than building them. So, if it's that easy to fool ourselves that what we're doing is good and makes us worthy of God's blessing, well, what then shall we do? The alternative is presented here as true worship. True worship is worship which reflects the grace and love of God as it's lived out in the world. God is not persuaded to, to favor us because of our devotion. He doesn't need to be persuaded because he loves us and he cares for us as a father cares for his children. His desire is for us to flourish, to find freedom and fullness of life. This is presented differently here from a, a similar passage in chapter 1 of Isaiah, where Isaiah's message seems to be, if you don't obey, destruction will come. Here there's a focus more on the positive offer that's available. If you do follow God's way, blessing will come. In the second half of chapter 58, there's a sense of people choosing to, to join in with God's work in the world, and in so doing, experiencing his grace and his favor and his presence. Those depicted here as true worshipers are those who take part in the transformation and great reversal that God is instigating in the world. In the face of injustice, they bring freedom. In the face of need, they bring practical assistance. In the face of disease, they bring healing and wholeness. In the face of defeat, they trust in God's vindication and protection. There's a real depth to this description of the difference that true worship makes to the worshippers themselves, to the world around them, and to their relationship with God. The false worshippers they're contrasted with seem to live with a fairly simple mentality, focused on what they put in, and what they anticipate on getting out of worship, a sort of transactional um, approach more suited to banking than to relationship. When we surrender our manipulative self-interest, we receive for free the blessings that God is longing to give to his creatures. There's a richness here, a depth, a beauty to the language and to the images that's painted of what a life lived with God and to his glory will look like. It's hallmarks, if you like. Rather than spending their time doing superficial religious acts to earn God's favor, these true worshippers live his way and reveal him to others. But this is not a call to activism, to busyness for the sake of doing good. This is a call to spend our time wisely and with an awareness of God at work in and through all that we do. It's particularly clear in these verses in verse 13. If you refrain from trampling the Sabbath, from pursuing your own interests on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, 
if you honour it, not going your own ways, serving your own interests, or pursuing your own affairs, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride upon the heights of the earth. God has given to his people the means by which to recalibrate their lives, to live their time his way. The Sabbath, the Sabbath was intended to be the means by which this reorientation occurred. A day spent in worship and the service of others rather than in one's own interest. This weekly routine was intended to root the remainder of the week in a pattern of worship and care for others. No wonder Jesus reacted so strongly to the criticism that he'd done something shocking by healing on the Sabbath. We read in Luke 13, the leader of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath and kept saying to the crowd, there are six days on which work should be done. Come on those days and be cured, not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, you hypocrites. Even God's love and command can become a meaningless ritual when it's detached from the love of others. So where does this leave us as we reflect on our experience of time? What might it look like for us to live our days with the metronome beat of God's love and grace determining the pace? What might Sabbath, lived God's way, look like in our own lives? Well, it'll look different for each of us. That much is clear. In this passage, just as we see Jesus' interactions on the Sabbath, the problem is not with the principle but when the implementation becomes devoid of all meaning, a day to be tolerated and endured in the hope that God will notice our sacrifice. The alternative is to find time redeemed from relentlessness as we prioritize time spent in God's presence and fully present with each other. In our home groups, we spend time discussing the passages and sermons that we engage in in our Sunday services. And I would suggest that there are several practical questions we might need to grapple with in our next home group discussions or indeed in our reflections um, on our own. Things like these. What steps might you take to implement a Sabbath in your own life and context? What would it mean to model this way of living to our children whose stress levels go through the roof with the burden of exams and homework? How do I balance the need to rest in God's presence with the call to actively love others and join in his living, loving mission in the world? And if you're not yet a member of a home group and would like a friendly place where you can discuss questions like those, then please do look at our website where you'll find all of the different groups. I'd also like to recommend a book um, written by another colleague of mine at St. Melitus, who's an Old Testament lecturer, um, Mark Scalata. It's called Sabbath Rest, The Beauty of God's Rhythm for a Digital Age. I have one copy that you are welcome to borrow, but we'll make sure when we next renew our book sale that we get some more copies of that because it seems like Sabbath is becoming a bit of a theme here. But if anyone wants to borrow that from me now, um, first comes, first served. I've only got one copy. Um, but Sabbath rest, the beauty of God's rhythm for a digital age. It also occurs to me that we may have plenty of opportunities in coming weeks to learn what it means to care for others, particularly for the most vulnerable. Um, we will need to learn um, what it means to find ways of offering love and practical help. So it might be buying shopping and leaving it at the door. 
It might be that we send a card or make a phone call to those who are isolated. It may be actually as simple as having to self-isolate ourselves in order to prevent uh, things happening for the most vulnerable. But may we be people who see need and who don't overlook the vulnerable. And as we go out from here, may we be people who are determined to find God's rhythm for our lives, who reflect his love and justice to the world, and to enjoy, who enjoy the freedom of his unearned grace offered to us in Jesus Christ. Amen.